0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In his 1948 review of Henri de Lubac's Sur Naturel, Philip Donnelly pointed out a remarkable deficit in the nature-grace debate as it was then emerging. And I quote, probably the most enlightening phase of future discussion will revolve around the concept of nature, its historical development in relation to the evolution of dogma, and particularly the divergent viewpoints of many patristic writers and of the scholastics. The cardinal point here will be the integration of the dogma of original sin into a complete synthesis of the supernatural order. Although de Lubach was aware of and had read Donnelly's critique, he never did take Donnelly up on his challenge to engage in a careful exposition of the theological tradition on the relationship between sin and nature, to complement his work on the relationship between nature and grace. It's not that de Lubach was unaware of the importance of unpacking the extent to which nature, as we experience it, has been wounded by sin. Going back as far as Cateau de Sisme in 1938, de Lubac had expressed a reticence over the teaching of his fellow, fellow Jesuit and erstwhile cardinal Louis Biot, which had guaranteed happiness apart from Christ for large swaths of the human race, even adults de Lubac referred to Biot's idea as natural salvation, salut naturel. He saw it as the logical conclusion of Francisco Suarez's theology of the effects of original sin, that fallen nature is pure nature, with a complete set of natural virtues oriented towards a completely fulfilling natural happiness. The specter of such a natural salvation for such a perfectly natural man drove an immense portion of de Lubac's argument against the commentatorial tradition's understanding of nature in Surnaturel. The naivety of it, especially in light of the horrors of Nazi Germany, stood behind the warnings of the drama of atheist humanism, and what he perceived as an attempt to revivify it after Vatican II, stood behind what de Lubach referred to as the post-conciliar allergy to sin. Allergie au péché. Not that the members of the church stopped committing sin, but that we cease to acknowledge sin, to talk about it, and to seek personal healing and forgiveness for it from Jesus Christ. De Lubac was not the only theologian to share these general concerns about a lack of attention to the way in which original sin wounds fallen nature, or even the more specific concerns about Bo's natural salvation. As unlikely an ally as Reginald Garrigou-Lagrange also devoted significant attention to the subject. It hardly needs repeating that Garrigou-Lagrange was among the fiercest critics of de theology of nature and grace. But on the subject of nature's wounding by original sin, the two saw relatively eye to eye. To be sure, Garrigou-Lagrange sets up his consideration of original sin differently, rooting it in a firm distinction between humanity's natural and supernatural ends. Following John of St. Thomas, he writes, By original sin, Man's will is directly averse to his final supernatural end and indirectly to his final natural end. Hence, fallen man is averse to God as his final end even naturally. But from that point onwards, he expresses a similar concern as de Lubac concerning the effects of original sin on fallen nature. For fallen humanity's aversion from its final end, he argues, is caused by a, quote, weak will inclined to a selfish good, end quote. That selfishness in turn prevents fallen human beings from achieving a variety of perfections that pertain to human nature as such, perfections which humanity created in a state of pure nature would have been able to achieve, like loving God above all things with natural love, fulfilling the natural law, or, fir- or forming virt- uh, acquired virtues which are connected by prudence. Simply put, quote, man has less powers in the state of fallen nature for naturally doing what is morally good than he would have had in a state of pure nature a view which Garrigou-Lagrange tells us is, I quote again, contested by several authors of the Society of Jesus. Although Garrigou-Lagrange tends to lump his Jesuit interlocutors together under the generic title of Molinists, that's the part where you shudder, he does, like de Lubac, single out Louis Biot. Biot's opinion that human beings can form natural virtues in relation to supernatural objects he sees as fundamentally destructive of the Christian faith. If humanity could attain a natural parody of supernatural virtue, it would lead to what Garrigou Lagrange describes as his own, as its own kind of, excuse me, his own kind of grace extrinsicism. And I quote, like gold applied over silver for those who cannot afi- afford to buy pure gold jewelry, it is plated, veneered. To be truly virtuous, fallen man needs the grace of God, not only elevating him to supernatural life, but also and especially healing him from the wounds of sin on the level of nature. Notwithstanding the concerns of de Lubach and Gary Lagrange, most recent interpreters of Aquinas have argued that Aquinas holds some version of Suarez's thesis that fallen nature is effectively pure nature. The support for this conclusion comes largely from the work of scholars like R. M. Martin, Odon Lotin, and J. B. Cor. In the early to mid 20th century, uh, this historical work had an important influence on subsequent philosophy and theology of the virtues, particularly the acquired moral virtues. Not unlike Suarez himself, who wrote during a time when members of the Society of Jesus were concerned to give an adequate account of the moral status of native peoples of the America who had never heard the gospel, recent scholarship in Anglo-American spheres has been animated by a concern to protect the possibility of moral goodness among non-Christians. In the 1990s, Bonnie Kent and Brian Shanley critiqued what Kent called McIntyre's moral provincialism for his reticence to affirm that non-Christians can form proper virtue without grace. In the early 2000s, that conversation developed into a debate primarily between Angela Knobel and Thomas Osborne about whether people outside a state of grace can form connected virtues. While more recently, it has developed into a much wider discussion about the relationship between acquired and infused moral virtues, which is what we're here to talk about today. But Suarez did not only utilize his theology of original sin to reflect on individual virtue. He also used it to reflect on corporate virtue the virtue of the polis. If, over the course of the 20th century, going back as far as John Courtney Murray, Anglo-American scholars have tended to focus on the importance of widespread acquired virtue as the bedrock of liberal society, recent scholarship, both within, but especially outside theological journals, has begun to question whether or to what extent that trust in acquired virtue is well-founded. Most would not wish to deny that there exist what Aquinas calls true but imperfect virtues real habits perfective of individual powers of the soul in relation to a naturally achievable, albeit temporal, end. Nevertheless, de Lubach's and Garrigou Lagrange's anti-Pelagian questions about the Suarezian tradition remain and are becoming increasingly relevant once again. Without calling into question the fundamental accuracy of historical scholarship on Aquinas's early work, I would like to suggest that part of the reason for the tension within the Thomistic tradition on the question of the effects of original sin in relation to virtue, is that we lack the same depth of detail about sources and context for Aquinas' later work as we have for his early work. The reason for that deficit is simple. The evidence for Aquinas' sources and context during the Second Parisian Regency remain largely buried in manuscript sources. What I would like to do today is to supply some of that evidence and begin to reconstruct the context within which Aquinas developed his mature view of the nature of original sin. I will show how, although Aquinas held a very similar view to that of Suarez in his early work, he developed that view into something more robustly anti-Pelagian when he returned to Paris for his second Parisian regency. When Aquinas was first in Paris, it had been an open question as to whether original sin was a positive vitium in the lower appetites, as in the Augustinian authors in the tradition of Peter Lombard, a positive habitus in the essence of the soul, as in Albert the Great, or an habilitatio that passes from the powers of the soul to its essence, as in Bonaventure. For his part, Aquinas had been uncomfortable with all of these options. Uh, For him, original sin fails to qualify as a habit in at least three senses. First of all, it resides in the essence of the soul. In his early work, Aquinas insists that natural potencies do not need habits because they already have a determination towards their ends, similarly nature's. it redounds from the essence of the soul to the will. In his early work, Aquinas insists the, that the, the natural will, insofar as it participates in nature's determination towards its end through its natural desire, also has no need of a habit. Finally, all the senses of the word habit or disposition in Aquinas' early work imply a positive quality. But Aquinas absolutely insists in his early work that original sin is a privation, not something positively infused or otherwise added to human nature, because original sin does not change the principles of nature. So what do you call the character of a nature resulting from the privation of an until recently existing quality such as the early Aquinas takes original sin to be? Aquinas does not hesitate to let us see that he is a bit at a loss for words, and this is text one. There's a difference between saying able and apt to. That someone is able to desire comes from his concupiscible power, but that someone is apt to desire comes from a certain habit, or rather from that which behaves in the manner of a habit. For it happens that there even exists a certain privation which leaves behind a sort of aptness inasmuch as something is taken away which could put forth an impediment, and in this way habitual concupiscence is said to be original sin. That is not the concupiscible power, nor again some habit which implies something positive, But the aptness itself which is left among the inferior powers towards desiring inordinately from the fact that the restraint of reason by which they were being held back from being able to tend towards their object unrestrainedly is taken away from the appetite the latin is as awkward as the english although the text is not as clear as one could wish the most reasonable inference that can be taken away from it is the one which the Suarezian tradition and the historical scholars of the 20th century took from it that the quality of a nature resulting from the privation of an until recently existing quality is nothing other than the privation itself, which is entirely natural, something which Aquinas himself elsewhere explicitly affirms. In other words, the early Aquinas thinks that fallen nature is nature's simpliciter, and the movements of concupiscence are simply its passions. There's a sense in which it can be described as defective secundum quid in relation to the supernatural and preternatural gifts it used to enjoy, but this affirmation must always bear in mind its own own relativity to an historical situation, for nature, taken in the abstract, remains completely intact. While Aquinas was away in Italy from about 1259 to 1268, the conversation about original sin, sin at Paris shifted. It seems to have become generally accepted that original sin is a habit. Aquinas was admittedly an outlier here anyway. And consequently, theologians shifted debating whether original sin was a habit to debating how it was a habit and in what component of the soul it resides as in a subject. One contributing cause to the shift may have been the work of the Franciscan theologian Richard Rufus. Rufus commented upon the sentences twice. His first commentary was at Oxford, just after Richard Fishacres, around the year 1245 to 1250. The second commentary dates either to Rufus's sojourn in Paris from 1253 to 1256 or to his subsequent teaching in Oxford from 1256 to 1259. Since the second commentary is more of an abbreviatio of Bonaventure, the first gives us more direct access to his particular thought. Responding to Fishaker, who had described original sin as a necessity of desiring with concupiscence, necessitas concupiscendi, Rufus raised a question in light of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics 2.5 where Aristotle says that there are three things in the soul, passions, powers, and habits. Rufus asks, in Fishaker's Necessitas concupiscendi, does the gerundive concupiscendi refer to an act, that is consent to a passion with the power of the will, or a habit? Since the Necessitas exists in children as well as adults, and since children don't have enough use of their reason to make a complete act of the will, Rufus thinks that the term must refer, in its most basic sense, to a habit. What then shall we say about the acts which proceed from this habit? Rufus is not quite sure what to say about children, but when it comes to adults, he borrows an example from Fishacre concerning a person who finds himself unable to satisfy a debt due to some prior choice which renders him incapable of doing so. Fishacre imagines, its kind of strange, he imagines somebody who has to satisfy a debt and then does something stupid and loses the use of his legs and now can't go back and pay the debt. If time is a series of instants, how many instants does it take to make the venial sin of injustice mortal? Rufus thinks that any answer would result in a regress to infinity of ever smaller instants, and so is, uh, the, the question is ultimately insoluble along that line of thinking. What differentiates mortal and venial sin is the moral gravity of a concrete action. Since then, the acts of concupiscence are discrete actions. How grave are they? Making deliberate reference to the Augustinianism of Peter Lombard and pushing it in an even more radical direction, Rufus states bluntly, what Viseker says is not what the master, that is, Peter Lombard, intends, but that, before grace, when a person sins, he or she sins mortally. In the 1250s and 60s, the secular master Gerard of Abbeville followed Rufus relatively closely at Paris. But some of Rufus's more moderate confrères in the Franciscan order, like Eustachius of Arras and Walter of Bruges, sought to defend the idea that not every movement of concupiscence is a sin before baptism. Only some of Eustachius' work on this subject has come down to us, but we still possess copies of Book II of Walter of Bruges's commentary on the sentences in two manuscripts. Walter, who lectured on the sentences in the first part of the 1260s at Paris, and served as regent master around the time of Aquinas' return, attempted to find a way of agreeing that original sin is a habit without necessarily implying that all the acts to which that habit disposes us are mortal sins. He found the solution not by rejecting the idea that original sin is a habit, but inspired by Aquinas's early work, by locating this habit in the essence of the soul. In order to develop the idea of original sin as a habit in the essence of the soul, Walter reached back to the discussion of habit in Aquinas's early work, reworking some of Aquinas's material from Commentary on the Sentences Book 3, Distinction 23, and adding to it some of his own research into Averroes' long commentary on the metaphysics, Walter carved out a space within Aquinas' work for the existence of habits of nature, something which the early Aquinas had not envisioned. And this is text two. Habit is said in three ways. First and properly, it is called the perfection added to a potency by which it is inclined to act when the time arrives, as Augustine says in the book on the good of marriage. Second and broadly, a habit is called whatever sort of additional quality that is difficult to dislodge. Even as Boethius says in his commentary on the categories, that habit is an affinity that is only able to be dislodged with difficulty, whether it is towards what is good or what is evil. Third, a habit of some nature which is, dispo- which is composed of many parts is called a disposition that is difficult to dislodge, according as the nature is well or poorly ordered. And in this way, health and sickness are called habits here. The first definition, though credited to Augustine, is actually lifted from Albert the Great's Commentary on the Categories, which was written between 1254 and 1257. Only the comment about acting at the right time actually comes from Augustine, and the exact wording has been borrowed from a said contra in Aquinas' Commentary on the Sentences Book 3, Distinction 23. The second definition does come from Boethius' Commentary on the Categories, which Aquinas alludes to in that same text. Only the third definition is unique to Walter. It comes from Averroes' long commentary on the metaphysics five, albeit that Walter has interpolated Boethius' emphasis on habits being difficult to dislodge into it. What emerges at first glance, excuse me, um, what appears at first glance to be a more purely Franciscan text is actually a Franciscan's attempt to draw upon Aquinas' early work to creatively respond to Richard Rufus. What Walter adds is a text from the Aristotelian tradition speaking of the possibility of a habit in a nature which disposes that nature, qua nature, well or poorly, towards its end. Walter uses the idea of a habit of nature to engage Aquinas' understanding of original sin as a mere privation from the essence of the soul and to develop it into the idea of a habit in the essence of the soul which deprives the soul of its proper ordering towards its end without therefore making every movement of concupiscence a sin. This is text three. Original justice was a habit in a third way, because it was a disposition arising from the obedience of the body to the soul, the right ordering of the lower powers to the higher powers and of the higher powers to God, which was difficult to dislodge and which was bequeathed to the soul in the manner of health from many components. But from a different perspective, although sickness implies privation, simply speaking, with respect to the injury it causes and with respect to health, nevertheless, with respect to the body in which it exists, the privation which sickness is, and which bequeaths an inequality or disparity of humors which is difficult to dislodge, especially when it is turned into to a disease, is called a habit. In this way, also, original injustice, or original sin, although with respect to the original justice which it takes away as a privation, simply speaking, nevertheless, with respect to the soul in which it bequeaths disobedience or the disordering of powers as a disposition which is difficult to dislodge, nay, rather, will never be dislodged in this life, is called a habit according to the common rule after the mode of sickness or paralysis or disease. Wherefore, it is more of a destructive habit than an operative one. As for how destructive this habit is, Walter follows Aquinas more generally. Original sin qua habit does not directly incline us to some particular act, that is the act of a disordered desire. Instead, because it quote, takes away what stood in the way of an inclination to evil action, that is original justice, Original sin does not incline us toward evil action directly, but indirectly," End quote. This leaves room for Walter to say with Aquinas that only those movements of concupiscence to which we give consent are sins. We do not know the precise date by which Walter finished his commentary on the sentences, but there are a couple of markers which can help us orient ourselves when dating it in relation to Aquinas' work. The first is the fact that it elsewhere utilizes the prima pars of Aquinas' summa Theologiae. This puts the final redaction of Walter's text after the Prima Parse had begun to circulate in Paris, around 1267. The second, which we will note below, is the fact that Walter does not appear to know William of Murbeck's translation of Simplicius's commentary on the categories, even though Aquinas makes generous use of it in the De Malo in 1270 and the Prima Secundae in 1271, both texts in which he has been shown to interact directly with Walter. We would assume Walter would have noticed. This suggests that Walter's text must be dated between the period 1267 to 1270 and provides some evidence for the inference, which will be supported textually below with regard to the Prima Secundae, that when Aquinas utilized Simplicius, he did so in part to respond to and improve upon Walter's earlier improvements to his own work. There are two characteristic features of Simplicius's commentary on the categories which Aquinas would utilize. The first is his critique of Boethius's idea that habits should be defined by their being difficult to dislodge. When applied to the specific case of a habituation of nature by the right ordering of its constituent parts, Simplicius does not think that the idea of difficulty in dislodging applies in the identification of habits. Health does not become health only when it is stable and permanent. By nature, health can come and go. And we do not for that reason say that the healthy person is not healthy, even if he or she is only healthy for a short time. Instead, Simplicius argues, not unlike Averroes, that health and sickness should be evaluated simply in terms of whether they are perfective or destructive of the nature in which they occur, not in terms of their stability or permanency. The second feature of Simplicius's text, which Aquinas would utilize, is his development of a more precise way of articulating the nature of a destructive habit, like sickness. Simplicius thinks that Aristotle's discussion of privation is incomplete, because it does not adequately account for the distinction between complete privations, for example, death is a complete privation of life, and incomplete privations which cause a tendency in their subject toward a complete privation. For example, sickness is an incomplete privation of health, which tends towards the complete privation of death as its terminal development. This idea of an incomplete privation, which causes a tendency towards a complete privation, made room for Aquinas to take Walter's understanding of original sin a step further, from being seen as a habit of the essence of human nature because it is difficult to dislodge, which in fact it is not, to being seen as a habit of the essence of human nature because it produces a tendency in human nature towards sin and ultimately spiritual death. As early as 1267 in Rome, Aquinas had read and begun to refer to Simplicius's commentary on the categories. Thus, when Aquinas arrived in Paris in 1268, we can be sure that he was aware of the text uh, whenever it was that he first read Walter's commentary on the sentences. It was not until around 1270, in the Questiones Disputate de Malo, a text in which Aquinas is already known to have been interacting with Walter, that he begins to utilize Simplicius' commentary in earnest. In doing so, he adopted both of the key insights noted above. The rejection of Boethius's criterion of difficulty in being dislodged will become important in the primus secundae, but the adoption of Simplicius's distinction between complete and incomplete privations had immediate relevance for Aquinas's conception of the effects of original sin in De Malo question 4 article 2. Here Aquinas asks what original sin is. Where previously he had focused on the merely negative aspects of original sin, He now draws a parallel between original sin and personal sin to incorporate both the negative aspects of original sin as privation and the positive aspects of original sin as habit. In any personal sin, there's both aversion from God and inordinate conversion towards some created good. There's also a residual habituation in the powers of the soul resulting from the choice to use them inordinately. So likewise in original sin. There's the loss of original justice, which is the result of aversion and is the formal component of original sin. And there's also what Aquinas will now call uh, habitual concupiscence. Since all people were as one person in Adam, when Adam used used his will to sin, although that concrete act of conversion was imputed to him alone, the residual effect of that conversion was passed down to posterity as an habitual inclination of the will. That habitual inclination, Aquinas explains, is not natural, and that's a quote. At one point, he even refers to it as unnatural. In other words, it somehow corrupts the soul to a level below that which is purely natural. But neither is it a positive habit, something which God purposefully placed into human nature as some kind of punishment. It is instead a tendency, pronitas, or aptness, habilitas, towards sin. This tendency has its origin in the essence of the soul. From the essence of the soul it's passed to the will, which as the motive power responsible for communicating the inclination of nature to the other powers of the soul and for coordinating the other powers of the soul through command and restraint so as to order them toward the good of nature as a whole, communicates the effects of original sin to the other powers of the soul. The will, wounded by malice, is born with a tendency to command the other powers of the soul towards acts of evil or to refrain from stopping them when they proceed there of their own accord. In this way, original sin creates in human nature a privative tendency towards sin and spiritual death, which appears to be more severe than the concupiscence which results from human nature's being composed of contrary elements. Prima Secundae. Aquinas expresses a similar view of original sin in the Prima Secundae. Here's he, here he is even more precise about how exactly the habit of original sin is passed from nature to the will. In Question 85, Article 1, he asks whether the good of nature is diminished by sin. In his response, he outlines three goods of nature, Uh, that of nature and its properties, like powers of the soul, that of its natural inclination to virtue, and that of original justice, which is natural in the sense of its having been given to human nature. Nature and its powers, he says, remain intact. Original justice is taken away completely, but the inclination to virtue is diminished. The diminishment of the inclination to virtue happens through the introduction of a contrary inclination to sin and through it to spiritual death. If we want to understand what Aquinas means by the diminishment of our inclination to virtue, we must look to what Aquinas says about the natural inclination to virtue in question 63, article 1. Here, Aquinas explains that the natural inclination to virtue is actually the result of a combination of two things in the soul. On the one hand, The intellect's natural knowledge of the first principles of speculative and practical reasoning, and on the other hand, the will's natural inclination towards the good. In the discussion of original sin, it is this latter inclination that occupies Aquinas's attention foremost. Not only does original sin unhinge, as it were, the powers of the soul, but it also causes a particular privation in the will through a distortion of its natural desire. Aquinas explains the precise origin of the distortion of natural desire in the will in Question 82, Article 1. Here he addresses the same question as had Walter, whether original sin is a habit. A textual comparison, comparison of Aquinas' text with Walter's, in light of the fact that Walter's text predates Murbeck's translation of Simplicius but Aquinas's postdates it, suggests that not only has Aquinas read Walter's text, but he has also used it as the base text for his own. In responding to Walter, Aquinas does two things. First, he carefully edits out all of the references to Boethius's difficile mobile, difficulty of dislodging. Second, he introduces the idea of original sin as a corruptive habit along the lines of what Simplicius suggests about imperfect privations. The removal of references to the difficulty of dislodging criterion appears in the corpus. While the introduction of the idea of original sin as a corruptive habit vis-à-vis Simplicius occurs later in the odd one. In the corpus, the reader will note that there are only two kinds of habits instead of three, since the reference to Boethius has been removed, as has Walter's interpolation of Boethius' difficulty of dislodging from Averroes' definition of a habit. In the odd one, Aquinas' description of corruptive habits is a new composition, which adds to what was present in Walter. Text four. Habit is twofold. There's one, whereby a potency is inclined to act, just as different forms of knowledge and the virtues are called habits. And in this way, original sin is not a habit. In another way, habit is called a disposition of some nature composed of many parts according as it is well or poorly disposed towards something, and especially when such a disposition concerns nature, as is clear in the cases of sickness and health. And in this way, original sin is a habit. For it is an inordinate disposition arising from the dissolution of the harmony in which the ratio of original justice used to consist, just as bodily sickness is also an inordinate disposition of the body according as the equality in which the ratio of its health consists is dissolved. This is why original sin is called a disease of nature." Against the first objection, we should say that just as bodily sickness has something of privation inasmuch as the equality of health is taken away, and something of a positive nature, namely the inordinately disposed humors themselves, so also original sin has the privation of original justice, and with this, an inordinate disposition of the parts of the soul. That is why it is not a pure privation, but is in fact a corrupt habit. By denying that original sin is a pure privation, Aquinas uses the language of Simplicius to remove, to, excuse me, to move significantly beyond the conception of original sin in his early work, and in some sense to overturn it. Where in his early work, Aquinas was absolutely insistent that original sin was a pure privation. Here he uses Simplicius' understanding of incomplete privations to endorse Walter's view that original sin is in fact a kind of habit, which results from the dissolution of the order in the powers of the soul, and which causes as a result a tendency in them towards sin. In fact, he even goes further, so far as to say that the habit of original sin can be considered an acquired habit in view of the fact that Adam's choice acquired the habit for nature in himself, in parallel to the way in which our own personal choices acquire personal habits for ourselves. There are two primary effects that follow in the soul from the presence of the habit of original sin in its nature. The first concerns its natural desire. Aquinas explains the effects of original sin on natural desire in his discussion of the necessity of grace for loving God above all things. In context, he's comparing integral nature with fallen nature. However, if we focus in on his discussion of fallen nature, he also gives us a careful, uh, a careful comment of how the fall affects the natural motion of the fallen soul. But in this, and this is text five, excuse me. But in the state of corrupted nature, man falls short of this, that is, loving God above all things, because of the appetite of his rational will, which follows a private good on account of the corruption of nature, unless it be healed by the grace of God. And for this reason, we should say that man in a state of integral nature did not need the gift of grace to be superadded to his natural goods in order to love God naturally above all things, even though he needed the help of God moving him towards this. But in a state of corrupted nature, man also needs this for this the help of grace healing nature. As for what it looks like in the fallen soul that has been wounded in this way, Aquinas' most concise summary can be found in the discussion of the wounds of sin in question 85, Article three. Although couched more generally in terms of wounds that can arise also from actual sin, Aquinas is clear in the corpus of his response to specify that the wounds he describes herein, namely ignorance, malice, concupiscence, and irascibility, are consequent upon original sin as well, and are merely exacerbated by personal sin. In this way, Aquinas comes full circle in the Prima Secundae under the influence of Walter of Bruges and Simplicius. The powers of the fallen soul are not merely deprived of original grace and original justice, but they are in fact wounded by original sin in such a way that these wounds acquired by Adam are passed down to posterity. By recovering the context in which Aquinas developed his mature thinking on original sin, it becomes possible for us to see how he brought together two ideas which most scholars consider incompatible. The idea that original sin is formally a privation of original justice, and the idea that original sin is a habit of human nature, which causes within it a tendency towards sin and spiritual death. The idea of original sin as a privation of original justice was with Aquinas from the beginning of his theological career. The idea of original sin as a habit of nature was suggested to him by Walter of Bruges in his response to Richard Rufus. And the, uh, I. Think so, yeah. Richard Rufus's idea that the habit of original sin makes the unbaptized mortally culpable for each and every movement of concupiscence, Nolens, Volens, and the idea of original sin as an incomplete privation which causes a tendency towards spiritual death was something he creatively drew from Simplicius's commentary on the categories. With this context in mind, it also becomes possible for us to see how the tradition would develop such disparate interpretations of Aquinas on original sin. The Suarezian tradition aligns with Aquinas's early work while the traditions represented by de Lubac and Garrigou Lourange respectively each capture important aspects of the developments in Aquinas' later work. The recovery of the context for Aquinas' mature work on original sin helps us to see how Aquinas attempted to preserve two sets of important theological goods as his career and his theological contemplation advanced. The first set we may call the humanistic goods. These are the goods rooted in the goodness of human nature as such, a goodness which is grounded in the fact that human nature is made in the image of God. Such goods include the fact that original sin does not destroy the primary principles of nature, its soul, its body, or its powers, that God does not add any negative quality to human nature as a punishment for original sin, and the fact that even in fallen nature, not every movement of concupiscence is a sin. Aquinas also helps us to balance these goods with a second set we may call the anti-Pelagian goods. Such goods include the fact that original sin wounds human nature and its powers, that, though a privation, it creates a tendency in wounded nature towards the spiritual death of sin, and the fact that fallen nature's struggle with concupiscence creates in us a need for the healing grace in G- of Jesus Christ in order to live a completely virtuous life. On the one hand, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And on the other, those who, have, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The challenge of preserving both sets of goods will require some rethinking of virtue theory in contemporary to mystic scholarship. In some respects, it may require changes of position. The idea that the mature Aquinas thinks that fallen human persons exist in a state of pure nature is difficult to maintain in light of the fact that Aquinas thinks that the, that the tendency towards spiritual death, which original sin creates in the essence of the soul, prevents the love of God above all things, the observance of the natural law, and the avoidance of sin. In fact, there was a contemporary of Aquinas who thought that human nature was subject to those defects qua nature. Aquinas' student, Giles of Rome. Giles, and the Aegidian tradition which developed from him, struggled for centuries to balance that position with the humanistic goods mentioned above. If humanity cannot avoid sin without the gift of original justice, is not God somehow bound to give it to us, lest humanity have been made, and I quote from Giles, not only a veritable, but already averse from God? In other respects, it may simply challenge us toward changes of emphasis. For example, while arguments can be made and to mystic texts marshaled on both sides of the question of whether fallen human persons can form connected but imperfect virtue, reading the mature Aquinas in context challenges us to ask how common or stable such virtue is or would be. Since fallen humanity has to contend with a weakening of its inclination to virtue in the form of a contrary tendency to sin, how long can we expect a fallen person to fight the good fight without the assistance of grace. Aquinas does not think we can expect them to fight forever. And finally, at the risk of being yet more provocative, is this sort of virtue common and reliable enough to structure a political society upon it? John Courtney Murray, whose political thought was far more overtly Augustinian than he has given credit for, wrote that because of the wounds of original sin, such a project was just barely possible, though it was, in fact, possible. Yet he foresaw the possibility of a time when, due to the advancement of doctrinaire versions of liberalism driven by humanity's wounded appetites, the tide might shift the other way, and his own vision of a society built upon natural virtue might no longer be achievable. One need not believe that we have reached that point to appreciate the difference between accepting Murray's vision as a given and recognizing with Murray himself that because of the wounds of original sin, it always hangs in the balance to the extent that the church is called to read the signs, of, the signs of the times, then shifts in this area of humanity's life are a sign that she cannot fail to miss. Because the purpose of inquiring into the wounds of original sin is not to be pessimistic about humanity as such. It is, as Aquinas de Lubach, and garrigue Lagrange all know, the flip side of the good news of the gospel. In the gospel of John, Christ proclaims, "'I have said these things to you, "'that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, And as Lumen Gentium notes, that victory is not something that Christ keeps to himself. This is the final text on your handout. Christ, becoming obedient even unto death, and because of this exalted by the Father, entered into the glory of his kingdom. To him all things are made subject until he subjects himself and all created things to the Father, that God may be all in all. Now Christ has communicated this royal power to his disciples, that they might be constituted in royal freedom, and that by true penance and a holy life, they might conquer the reign of sin in themselves. Further, he has shared this power, so that serving Christ and their fellow men, they might by humility and patience lead their brethren to that king, for whom to serve is to reign. Aquinas anticipates Lumen Gentium in his discussion of why it is that if humanity has been wounded by original sin, baptism does not take away that wound. His answer is so that by contending successfully and virtuously against concupiscence, we might receive the crown of victory with Christ. As Augustine and Aquinas, each in his own turn, sought to preach, that crown is not something that we can win for ourselves, but it is something that Jesus Christ wants to win in each one of us. But in order to open our minds and our hearts to that good news, we must, in ourselves and in our virtue theory, recognize our need to hear it. And so we must follow Aquinas on the journey of humility, which moves from a conception of our nature as pure to a conception of our nature as wounded, so that in ourselves and in our virtue theory and in everything that flows from it, we may be disposed to the reception of Christ's healing and triumphant grace. Thank you.